Well, today I want to speak to you as a shepherd and a pastor and a friend. We're taking a bit of a break from our study of Romans. We're going to be back in Romans after Labor Day. But uh, we have some, I have some standalone sermons that I wanted to address to you before we get there and pick up that great section of Romans chapter 12. Today I want to talk to you about the Christian's response to politics and government. And next week I want to outline a theology of Christian dressing. I'm talking about modesty and propriety. And uh, I, it's, it's a burden on my heart. It has been for a long time, but after living in France for a month, it's even more of a burden. So that's going to be our, our subject next week. But today I want to talk to you about politics, but probably not in the sense that you might expect. If you're looking at the title, it says, A Christian's Contrarian Guide to Politics. A contrarian is someone who thinks contrary to the norm. And I'm convinced that most Christians don't think very much at all about politics, or at least think biblically about them. And if you think biblically about politics in the world in which we live, you're going to be a theological contrarian. You're going to think contrary, not only to people in the world and the culture, but you're going to think contrary to many people who name the name of Christ. The Bible is full of descriptions about nations and kingdoms and kings and rulers and authorities. And where you find nations and kingdoms and kings and rulers and authorities, you find politics. And yet, the Bible says very little. Dare I say nothing about how to be involved in the political process. The one place you might say, well, it's an example, but not really a, a, a mandate, is Ahasuerus and Esther, remember? A lot of politics happening all surrounding a what? A beauty contest, of all things. The Bible says very little about God's children engaging in politics, but says a lot about God's children faithfully, faithfully living as his child in the midst of unjust and wicked governments and politics. Now, before we start looking around and saying, singing that song and woeing those woes and saying, look how bad it is, can you believe what we're, what we're facing in, in the Supreme Court and the White House and the government and the state legislature, can you, it's just, I mean, chicken little is on full volume. Think back with me to the politics and the political circumstances in the time of Jesus in the first generation of Christians. Only the wealthy during that era had any rights. And those rights were bribed or purchased. Taxation was universal and exorbitant. There was a base tax that was required from from anyone living in the greater Palestinian area or the Roman Empire that had certain dates that you were supposed to pay your taxes. At any point, though, in between those dates, a tax collector, do you remember reading about tax collectors in the Bible, in the New Testament? A tax collector would come, demand that tax, but the way he made his money was to add whatever fees he wanted and desired on top of that tax. You know why they were so despised and hated then. No one ever 
had any vote on anything. Think about the culture. Homosexuality, rampant, sanctioned by the Roman government, encouraged among Roman soldiers. Temple prostitution, not only encouraged, but required if you wanted to be in good standing with your God. And we could go on and on, and we'll come back to looking at the, the politics of Rome uh, when we get to Romans 13 in just a few months. But think about Israel's politics for a moment. At the time of Jesus' birth, the ruler of that area was an Idumean, a half-breed, but named Herod the Great. He was supposed to be a representative of Rome to the Jews and the Jews to Rome. And yet, this was the politics of his day. Feeling threatened by a prophesied one day to be king, who he surmised from the wise men showing up about two years after Jesus' birth, that the king had been born. And so in one edict, in one moment, with one sentence, he sent out a decree, get this, to execute and kill every male firstborn child two years old and under. Listen, I'm, I am a proponent of, of, of or an opponent rather, of abortion, obviously. What a heinous thing. But as wicked as we see the culture of abortion today, this is worse. These Roman soldiers, under Herod's decree, walked into homes and took babies two years old and under from their mothers and executed them in front of the whole family. So before we stand at the water cooler and start singing the woes of how bad the political situation is here in America, just take a deep breath of gospel biblical history. Add to that, you could be executed if you didn't worship Caesar as God. Now that's the New Testament in Jesus' time. We could go through the book of Acts and see so much more, but think about the Old Testament. The lethal environment of King Ahasuerus. Remember Mordecai and Esther and a beauty contest, Haman. And if you didn't do what he thought was right, you didn't get demoted, you got hanged. Or the murderous regime of Nebuchadnezzar who attempted to murder Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the murderous regime that followed him, the Medo-Persian Empire under Darius who sought to execute, because of his own law, Daniel as an old man in the, chi- in the lion's den. You look at all this and you begin thinking, you know what, things are bad. But this is not the only time and the only government in which things have looked bad in the history of the world. Add to that even worse. In Israel's history, only eight of 20 kings were godly or good. Read at the end of 1 Kings, the reign of Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel 
who wielded the sword in the name of God for evil purposes. Now, bring all that up to let you know, we're not the first people to live in a political situation that caused us to ask questions, to ask, is this fair? Is this right? What can I do about this? They could do nothing about this. There was no vote. So what I want us to do do this morning is to think about how to think properly in the midst of a political culture and climate. And I want to tell you, I find myself ever tweaking and sharpening my own thinking about politics. I think I'm thinking better now than I did four years ago and better then than four years before. And hopefully four years from now, I'll have an even sharper biblical mindset and thinking these things through. Yes, it may be the, the choice of the lesser of two evils, but hasn't it always been from George Washington on? We're not electing a pastor-in-chief. We're electing a commander-in-chief. That has to be kept in mind. And by the way, I hope you're aware that our republic is not based upon what is commonly thought of as democratic standards. We live in a representative republic, not a voting democracy. Remember that? Go back to Civics 101 in high school. If you're not sure about that, ask the four presidents, no, I'm sorry, the four candidates who won the popular vote but were not president. 1824, Andrew Jackson won the popular vote. John Quincy won the Electoral College. 1876, Samuel Tilden won the vote. Rutherford B. Hayes won the election by the Electoral College. 1888, Grover Cleveland won the vote, but Benjamin Harrison won the election. And you know what happened in our lifetime, right? 2000, Al Gore won the popular vote. He, he had more votes than George Bush, but he lost the election because we live in a re- representative republic, not a voting democracy. The founders understood that voting is not always the best way to choose a leader. Isn't that interesting? That, that would sound like heresy in many political halls. That's what the founders actually decided. We need a recalibration of our understanding of politics from a Christian perspective. Some of us need a recalibration as Americans to how high school civics went. That was one of the ones we we ignored. We, We need to remember what kind of republic we live in. But how should a Christian respond in this? I cannot recommend highly enough to you a book from my mentor, John MacArthur, Why Government Can't Save You. Get it on Amazon. Amazon's open on Sunday. You can order it today. Why Government Can't Save You. It's an excellent, excellent description of a Christian's responsibilities and duties in any government, not just an American republic. He writes this in this book. Over the past several centuries, people have mistakenly linked democracy and political freedom to Christianity. Let me say that again. Over the past few centuries... People have mistakenly linked democracy and political freedom to Christianity as if this is a Christian way to run things. For a Christian to think biblically in our political world, we must embrace the fact that if we are thinking biblically, we will think as contrarians. People will tilt their heads like that dog at a high whistle and go, you think what? And why do you think that? 
In other words, our views, our words, our values will be contrary to the world's. And sometimes it will be contrary to those who claim the name of Christ. Oftentimes, it will differ even from our politically conservative friends. Why? I think what happens is that Christians can easily be duped into thinking what the moral majority and others have told us for years, that you can actually legislate heaven and her values on earth through the government. Think about it. All we want is Christian values, Christian standards, right? And we expect non-Christians to execute and employ these. Really? How has that worked out throughout history? We will never be able to legislate God's values through vote or popular vote. So how should we think about politics and the government? Now, I want to confess to you, I grew up a political junkie. Almost every evening with my father uh, was a political discussion. I remember him sitting me down in my, in, my, in my couch and saying, you will watch Richard Nixon resign from the presidency because this is important and this will mean something to you someday. He's on camera. He signed something. Okay, I want to go play. But it, he understood that, that these things matter. That was the same father who woke me up in the middle of the night to watch Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. I appreciate my dad now. <laughs> but the more we look at the Bible, the more differently we'll look at the government. Now, you're going to need to know that a lot of this is, pr- is primer. We're going to come back to this. In Romans 13, there's, there's seven or eight verses that actually deal with this head on. And we're going to come back and study it even more intensely then. But for now, and in the climate of our elections... I think it's important to kind of circle the wagons and say, what are we thinking and how are we thinking and are we thinking rightly and biblically? So what I want to do is give you six categories in which a Christian should be a political contrarian. Six categories in which a, political, a Christian rather should be a political contrarian. We shouldn't think like the world or even our conservative friends who are unbelievers. The first category is how we think about citizenship. How we think about citizenship. Philippians chapter 3, you know it well. Let me read it for you. Brethren, verse 17 of Philippians 3, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. But, or for, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you look around, You look at the government, you look at the world, it's going the wrong direction. Their end is destruction. It's not going to end well for an unbeliever. Stop and take a deep breath of Scripture and remember our citizenship is in heaven. That was Paul under Caesar talking to the Philippians. Fast forward a couple of decades and you have Peter writing... His epistle under Nero, who was burning Christians for his garden parties. He could light his gardens with 
Christians dipped in pitch. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as set by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God. Pretty serious, isn't it? We submit to the government unless the government tells us to submit to something that is contrary to God's word. Then we don't submit. I want to say something that I want you to think about before you stand up and leave, okay? God is not an American. We are citizens of his kingdom. He is not a citizen of ours. He is the king of kings of all eternity, of every moment in existence. King Jesus is the ruler of believers and will soon be the ruler of the entire universe when he's revealed in his coming glory. And remember this. We have a king with no term limits. We don't have to get upset every four years that he might not make it back to the Oval Office. The authority for a believer then is the timeless word of God. The authority for a believer is not the Constitution itself, even though the Constitution of America has so many biblical principles for which we're grateful. Now, let me just say this as a, as a, a qualifying footnote. I'm so glad, praise God, I was born in this country with this government to have the rights and privileges I have here. I, I've traveled the world. I've seen where people don't have these, these privileges. But this is where I was born. I didn't, I didn't choose to be here. I'm glad to be here. I, but this wasn't a choice I made. Our Constitution is a wonderful document. It's just not... Scripture. And listen, this is an argument that I've had with so many friends who say the Constitution allows you to vote, therefore you're mandated to vote. Be careful with that. Just because the Constitution says you can vote doesn't mean you have to. If you want to take that line of reasoning, let's go to look at the amendments. The Constitution says in the First Amendment that you can have freedom of speech. So why are you not down knocking on the door of the editor of the Kansas City Star telling him what you think? You have free speech to do it. Why aren't you doing it? Because you're allowed to, but you don't have to. The Second Amendment allows you to bear a firearm in your home. Is that a mandate that you have to? Some people don't want to. It's not a mandate. How about the 14th Amendment, which was used in Roe versus Wade? Our constitutional amendment, the 14th Amendment, allows a woman to have an abortion. Because it allows an abortion, is that a mandate that we should have them? Be careful if you say, because the Constitution allows, it forces you as a mandate. Vote. You ought to vote. You can vote. Why not? Vote your conscience. But don't let your voting preferences be the signature of your life as a Christian. Remember that every election since the first one has been a choice of what we would call the argument of a lesser of two evils. I mean, the last election, we were, we were um, voting between a president that not a lot of people like and a Mormon. We were voting for great presidents, some of whom we say were the greatest presidents to live in our lifetime, who were serial adulterers. 
So let's not be pious and say, well, we're voting for the righteous over the unrighteous, and even the lesser of two evils is a righteous choice. You can vote and you can vote your conscience, but there's no mandate to vote for an unbelieving, godless politician. You can, but you don't have to. We're electing again a commander-in-chief. We are not electing a pastor-in-chief. And just a footnote about politics and the pastorate. I want to make a commitment to you. I'm not sure I've done this publicly, but I'll, I'll do it now. This... As long as God gives me a ministry here with the, with the wonderful men that I serve with, this pulpit will never be used as a political voice. Ever. We have a different citizenship and a king that we promote. Political preferences are secondary to our Christian worldview and our politics should never be a Christian's signature. Our source and allegiance is God and his word, not the RNC and Fox News. Someone once told me, I remember where I was standing, they said, you know God is a Republican, don't you? That's blasphemy. To say God is something he's not? I love how Martin Luther framed this mindset for us. You'll hear this again in Romans 13. Conduct yourselves, he said, as those who are no longer citizens of the world, for your possessions lie not on this earth but in heaven. And although you may have lost all temporal goods, you still have Christ, who is more than anything else. The devil is the prince of this world, and he rules it. Do we remember that? Are we expecting that this is going to be Christ and his rule? I guess unless you're a post-millennialist, and I've never met an honest post-millennialist, a post-millennialist is one who thinks that Christians were put on the planet to get it better and make it ready for Jesus who can come and be king once we make it right. Have you read Revelation? Have you read that book? It gets really bad before it gets good. And it doesn't get really good with us in charge. But that's another sermon. Luther says, therefore, since you're not of this world, act as a stranger, a stranger who's at, a, at a, in an inn, a hotel, who does not have his possessions with him, but merely procures food and spends money for it. For this world is merely a place of transit where we cannot stay. We must travel farther. Therefore, we should use worldly goods only to shelter and sustain ourselves before we depart and go to another land. In heaven, we are citizens. On earth, we are just pilgrims and guests. Last month, I was studying in France, and uh, there was a gentleman in the class, the French class I was taking, who was from Scotland, and the first day of our class was just a few days after the Brexit vote, you know, England, uh, the United Kingdom voting to exit uh, the European Union. And I taught, we had several lunches where we talked about these things, so it was really interesting to his, hear, hear his perspective as a, as a UK citizen. And I recognized a lot of things. First of all, I didn't know nearly as much about that as I thought I did. Secondly... I didn't care really as much about that as I thought I did. And thirdly, he didn't know much about America's politics or even our election. And I thought, what a, what a parable. That, that, I was in France talking to a Scot. That was, I, I mean, I, I just had a suitcase full of stuff. That's not where I was staying. Now, I know we're in America, and I know we, we swim in American political waters, but we need to remember that we're Christians who are only going to be here a little while. This isn't home. And we, I hope this doesn't upset anybody. We will not elect 
a person who is going to make America a Christian nation. Even if we elected a great, godly Christian leader, look at the Crusades, look at the Middle Ages. Can you legislate Christ's kingdom? Can you become a Christian nation and make everybody a Christian? That's where you got infant baptism from. That's another sermon as well. They said, we'll just make them Christians by baptizing them. Therefore, they're automatically Christians and a part of the state and the kingdom at the same time. We should care about our country. I love our country. I'm so glad to, to live in this country. But we're Christians first and Americans second, right? Our politics are of another world. I'm going to go through these other ones very fast. Hope, a second category that we are Christian contrarians. Hope, what do we hope in? Is our hope in electing the right person and then the, and the wrong person not getting elected? You talk to some Christians, you think that's true. You read some Facebook posts and you think that's would you just shut your Facebook accounts off? As if Facebook is your pulpit and politics is your sermon. Get a Christian life. Really. I mean, you're just one voice. It stands out more if you'll talk to the person you work with or your neighbor about what's really important than if you'll make posts that you can, un, that you can erase people who say things you don't like. Any That's another sermon as well. Our hope is not found in politics. Romans 5 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through electing the right president. I'm sorry, that's not what it says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom, through him, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope. We exult in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Hope will not disappoint if it's in Christ and his kingdom. Not if it's in the political process and our candidate. A Christian's disposition then should be one of hope, not fear. Not anger, not despair, not discouragement, not being disheartened. You're going to wake up on Wednesday after the election and people are going to look at you and wonder if your Christianity matters now. No matter who's elected. You gloat and spike the football or you whine and complain and slip into Eeyore Christianity. What about on that Wednesday after the Tuesday election if somebody says, what do you think about the election? Say, well, that's interesting, but... It doesn't matter who I voted for. Can I tell you who voted for me? God voted for me in the elective purposes in Christ, and he brought me into faith. I'm amazed by that. And they'll think, huh? That's contrary to normality. And they would be right. Our hope is not rooted in this world, and it never will be sustainable if it is. Where is your confidence if your candidate or political party does not win? How would that affect you, and how does that affect God? Peter says in 1 Peter 1, we have a living hope. Our living hope is Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave. Number three, theology. Theology. That's another category in which we're contrarian the way we think. 
you do know that the Bible tells us how the political story of this world ends, right? We, we know the end of this world. We, we've been told it. Jesus comes, his robe is dipped in blood after a battle because of the sword of his word coming out of his mouth, destroying enemies who are against him, the leaders of the world, and he wins. But it gets really bad before that. Really bad. I'm not sure what your view is on tribulational period, whether you're a pre-tribulational rapture, that's what I believe, where believers are taken out, whether you're in the mid-trib or pre-wrath or post-trib or pan-trib, it'll all pan out or whatever, whatever you think, it, no, no matter where you are, that you realize that God has said before it gets really good, it is awfully and terribly and horrifically bad. And yet you have some Christians just Walking through life, we got to elect the right people, then it'll be great in the world. Really? Is Revelation in your Bible? Is 1 Peter in your Bible? What's God's position on that? Uh, Psalm 2. Here's God's view of politics in one psalm, Psalm 2. This is an interesting psalm because it's a messianic psalm, meaning it had uh, uh, temporal, authorial intent for what was going on in David's life at this moment, and it had... Uh, according to the book of Hebrews, which, which tells us how to, how to uh, uh, interpret this, it had futuristic application to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Psalm 2 says. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising useless things, vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel, listen to this, against the Lord and his anointed. In this context, the original context, it meant David, but there was a futuristic understanding that political leaders, kings and leaders and rulers would take their position against the gospel and against Jesus. And can I say this out loud? Both of whom, both candidates that you're watching run for president right now have done so. They're in this category. And this is what they say. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us, their cords are their, their binding moral standards. Let's not live according to those righteous people's ways. He who sits in heaven laughs. Then it goes on. The Hebrew is, is really harsh. It says, and he makes fun of them. He scoffs at them. He mocks them. That's what God looks at. That's how God sees the political environment in the world. He laughs at it. He goes, really? Really? This is what you think leadership of human beings is? Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He did that with David. But tell me if what he says next applies to David or Jesus. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. That never happened with David. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. That didn't happen with David. Speaking of Christ, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Why do we think America is exempt from such? 
Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's God's perspective. We need to remember our theology. Psalm 50, God says, you thought I was just like you and, and that was a problem. Isaiah 50, 55, his ways are not our ways. 2 Timothy 3, in the end, evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. And God judges nations for godlessness, and beloved America is no exception. I truly believe the two candidates with which we are left to make a decision is the judgment of Almighty God on a nation that's turned its back on him. Winning political battles is not the equivalent of winning souls to Christ. We have such a greater, greater burden. And listen, the worse it gets, the better for the gospel. Because people will begin to see that there's hope to get out of this mess. Not try to re- construct this mess into something that's heaven. We'll come back to that in Romans chapter 13. Number seven. Excuse me, number, uh, number four. Got a little excited there. Number four. <laughs> values. Our values are contrarian. We don't, our values are not the same as the world's. We have to ask the question, are we trying to, listen, are we trying to moralize the unconverted or are we trying to convert the immoral. That's the question. Our mandate is not to get the best laws in America. That doesn't save anyone from an eternal hell. Our mandate is to tell them about Jesus, the king who died for their sins and rose from the grave and offers them hope for eternal life. Our values are different. Don't confuse moralism with godliness. Cults can teach people to act moral. That's not godly. Even our righteousness not aimed at God is as filthy what? Rags. Christian values are not to be construed as American values or vice versa. For example, saw an interesting debate on uh, uh, some blogs that was very fascinating. Two godly men who I respect very well talking about the... Um, uh, the refugee crisis in the Middle East and people coming one day to America. And this was the, the issue of the debate. Shouldn't we, as stewards of our family and country, value safety so much we keep all the potential bad guys out? That, that's a view. And the other man, who was more convincing to me, said, God said impact the nations with the gospel. What if God said, I'm going to bring them to you? And your physical safety was never something I promised. Is physical safety the ultimate value of a Christian? Let's ask Latimer and Ridley, who were tied at the stake, dying for their faith when they could have made one little confession and got out and saved their lives, but they didn't believe safety was worth compromising their convictions. I'm not trying to make a big statement about the refugees. I'm just asking, what are your values 
in thinking these things through. Are those Christian biblical values? Political anger, political frustration undermine the confidence we should have in the gospel. Listen, a Christian should never, especially with an unbeliever in the conversation, should never be fretful and say, oh, it's just terrible. We should say, yeah, I know, I, I, I voted, you voted, that's great, but let's talk about your soul. It's going to last forever after the potential eight years of this next presidential candidate. Let's talk about what's forever. We should have joy. Our values should make us joyful, not fretful. Where do ungodly leaders fit into your values and into your theology, into your actions? Let me tell you how ungodly, Caesar-worshipping politics factored into Paul's understanding. 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Listen, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. He says, are you praying for your leader? I pray for my leaders, Paul said. Paul was praying for Caesar. Can I ask a question that I don't want to answer out loud to you? In the last six months, have you spent more time in discussions about the negatives of a politician or a political process than you have on your knees in weeping, humble adoration of the Lord saying, please save this man or woman. Bring them to Christ. Control them by Christians who are around them. Are we praying for them or just complaining about them? It's a pretty heavy responsibility. Number five, our mission. We've already said it. Our mission is to save souls, not elect leaders. Listen very carefully. Write it down if you have to. Democrats are not the enemies of the gospel. Democrats are the mission field for the gospel. Republicans are not friends of the gospel. Republicans are the mission field for the gospel. Think biblically. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, the goal in Matthew 28 was not political transformation of the nations. Rather, it was the conversion of individuals in the nations. And in the last 30 years, at least in my own observation, an idea has gained traction in America, namely that cultural transformation and societal moralization are to be the work and the goal of Christian ministry, even the church. Nowhere is this described or intimated in God's Bible. I'm not a pacifist. Wait till the end, okay? Lastly, number six. Our memory should make us a contrarian. Our memory. Let me just make this fast. Is the book of Acts in your Bible? Have you read the book of Acts? And the encounter with politicians and governments, how'd that work out? They executed Paul. Church history, when people have tried to say that you meld together the church and the state, 
That's, by the way, where we got infant baptism. That was a way you could assure that someone was both a Christian and a Brit or an Englishman or a Christian and a Catholic in Spain or France. That, that, that's where infant baptism came from, is owning them from birth. And how'd that work out into turning this world into God's kingdom? Convert or die? That's a good evangelistic strategy. 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. We're not fighting Clintons and Trumps. We're not fighting politicians. We're not even fighting unbelievers. We are fighting demonic forces that are animating people to think wrongly about Jesus. That's what we're fighting. Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Don't be chicken little and say, everything's falling. It's terrible. There's no one to vote for. We know that God wins. Do we not? Do you know that, I should say? Do you believe that? I love what Jesus said in John 16, 33. The things which I have spoken to you, so that you may, these things I have spoken to you, rather, so you may have peace. Peace. Turn off CNN and Fox News. Focus on Jesus. He wants to give you peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. And then he says this, says this, take courage. I've overcome the world. Spurgeon said, there can be no comparison between a soaring seraph, an angel, and a crawling worm. Christian people ought to live, ought to so live that it were idle to speak of a comparison between them and the people of the world. And then he says this, should not be a comparison, but a contrast. Said another way, we're contrarians. We're contrasted by the rest of the world. We don't think about politics the same way, do we? We know how it ends differently than they think it might end. So what do you do? Five bullet points will be fast. What should you do? Hey, I vote your conscience. You can vote. It's, you're allowed. Vote your conscience. You can write some win. You can vote for a third party. You can vote for one of the major parties. You can vote your conscience. You're allowed to. You can do it. But it's not a sin not to. Any more than it's a sin not to get an abortion because it's allowed under the Constitution. Number two, pray for your leaders. In the last seven days, have you had any discussion about a political pundit a politician himself, a policy, and that discussion actually outweighed in passion, in time, in devotion to your prayer for those people and those issues. Boy, I'm convicted by that. Pray for your leaders. Number three, trust in God. Do we, if we believe we know he has the end in mind, shouldn't we trust him? A fretful Christian is a contradiction. Who did you vote for? doesn't matter. Christ voted for me. He's for me and not against me. Romans 8 says, I want to talk to you about that. Can I tell you what he did in my life? That's the better discussion at the water cooler. Number four, remember what's true. Theology matters. Remember what is true. Let your values and your convictions and your theology be informed and governed by Scripture, not by intuition or the cable news networks. In fact, as quick as you turn off Facebook, turn off the cable news networks too. 
And number five, be a great commission Christian. Be a great commission Christian where we are about the king and his kingdom and souls and their eternity, not four years or even eight years. Now, does that mean we're passive and we don't do anything? Not at all. I said vote your conscience. Vote. You can vote. But that's secondary to evangelism, is it not? Is it not? The Bible tells us to tell people about the king. The Bible doesn't tell us to make sure we get the right president. I'm all for voting. I talked to some friends this last week. I'm convinced I'm going to vote. I vote my conscience behind a screen that means it's private. Then I go live my life, enjoy my family, and tell someone about Jesus. Politics should not upset us, friends. Where is our theology when that happens? Your theology is on display when you talk about politics probably as much as at any other point in your life. What do you believe? And again, before I get the emails, I'm not suggesting passivism. I'm suggesting perspective. Perspective. 